Hey everyone, it's Quickie on the couch. This is Keely from the podcast Hearts and Other Sex Parts. This broadcast will be in addition to the regular interviews from the podcast. They'll be shorter, like 10 to 15 minute sessions, learning more about a variety of healers, helpers, and other folks out there supporting sexual health and relationships. For today's episode, I will be chatting with Stella Harris, who is a certified intimacy educator and sex coach. She writes a sex advice column for Portland's Willamette Week and recently released her book, Tongue Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships. Hey, Stella. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, Anything else you would like our listeners to know about you from what I just mentioned? That's the bulk of it. You can find out more about me on my website, uh, StellaHarris.net. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, all of the usual internet places. Nice. So Stella um, just wrote this book, and then actually before we got on air, we were talking just about sex in general, of course, and sex education, all the lacking of sex education, which we could go on about for hours. Um, But one of the pieces that really um, around so many different, you know, sex ed, many things sex um, included is how cis-heteronormative the language is. And we were talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and right at the beginning of this book, I noticed how you defined your writing and used such inclusive language that was not gender or sexually specific. And I so appreciate that. Thank you. Have you, have you always done that in your writing or how was, what was the difference Yes and no. Certainly since I've been writing nonfiction, sort of sex ed based nonfiction, that's been something that's been really important to me. Um, seeing gender based language has been a huge turnoff for me in in other books and in classes. I noticed it really explicitly in, in the kink scene. In some kink classes I would take, instructors would use gender pronouns as shorthand for dominant and submissive. And whenever I was in the class, the person would sort of have to keep catching themselves and correcting it as though it was for my benefit and not just because that was crap in general. Um, So that sort of thing has always really rubbed me the wrong way. So that was something that was very important to me for this book and that that be a part of this book. It's also something that's a part of my teaching and that is part of my mission statement. I've even when I'm teaching have had to talk to some venues about making sure their introductions are gender neutral or that they have gender neutral bathrooms available. And luckily it it aligns with the mission of a lot of places that I teach. For example, when I teach at places like Reed College, they require that these sorts of talks be gender neutral, um, which I'm so thrilled to see schools starting to catch up. And obviously Reed is kind of a special case. They're on the more liberal end of the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. But I'm seeing that at more colleges. And so that's really a delightful change. Oh, yeah. It just was so nice to, you know, just just from the intro, you know, as a queer person, I was able to read the book and just imagine me and imagine me, my partner and not trying to like change languages or having these images of already, you know, from like some rom-com or something, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like being able to really see this fitting into my relationships and, and my communication and dialogue. So that was awesome. And it's not only about queer inclusivity. I think it, it helps to dismantle this idea that, you know, different genders are somehow, you know, from different planets, sort of that thing. And 
and giving people a a pass based on gender or making really unhealthy assumptions based on gender. And it just, I think, draws such a divide between people. Because if you're talking about a body part, you know, here's a thing, you know, X, Y, and Z body part does, fine, talk about the body part. But all of the rest, the talking and the feelings, it really applies to everyone. And it's just nonsensical to add gender to the mix. Yeah, and with, you know, there's this inclusivity and non-assumption that's like something that you talk about multiple times in the book is not assuming. And I think about how not assuming is so inclusive. And you mentioned in the book this um, party that you had attended, that you were, it was a sex party that you were um, a part of, and you went up to the people organizing the sex party and you said, in the book, hopefully mm-hmm. I'm saying this correctly. Um, you, one of the rules of the sex party was no sex, and you were like, "What do you mean no sex?" And there was mm-hmm. like this pause, and I was imagining, yeah, if I'm correct, I was imagining like two cis hetero folks being like, uh, "What do you mean? What is sex?" Yeah. Yeah, at that particular sex party, there was sex allowed in some places. I was put in charge of the dungeon floor level. And yes, the rule for that space was kink play, touchy-feely. And then they just said no sex and left it at that. And yes, I made them wildly uncomfortable with my detailed (laughs) question asking about what was and wasn't sex. And it's such a good start, you know, because I see that all the time. Like, you know, in my office... When I, I see a variety of couples, and when I'm working with cis hetero couples, there's just this go to sex of like mm-hmm. penis vagina. And it's so, it just limits people. Yeah. And so when there's this opening, you know, from the get go, this opening of inclusivity, and then you talk about not assumptions yeah. and really making it these actions and exercises, which, you know, by the way, you know, for listeners out there, this book not only has definitions and ways to communicate with your partner or with partners, um, but also some really nice, like quite a bit of exercises and, and, and very specific, which is really, really great. Um, and what I noticed with, so there was the not assuming things. There's a lot of pieces of communication. Another big thing that I noticed that like I would like to hear more of is maybe either how you talk about it in the book or how you include this more in your sex coach or um, in your education pieces that you do is around helping people building self-awareness so Mm, that they're mm -hmm. again, this idea of non-assumptions and clarity, like how you help people to build that Mm self-awareness. Well, there's a piece of checking in with yourself that I think we don't learn how to do. Um, And going right back to what you said with the assumptions, it, it harms everyone if we have a narrow assumption of what sex is, even hetero couples, you know, if their bodies stop doing the things they used to do, and then they think they can't have sex at all because their body won't do that one thing. And it can really harm a relationship if they don't get that intimacy anymore. So some of that self-awareness comes from unpacking, well, what were you wanting from that encounter? You know, is it just about having an orgasm? Is it about building intimacy? Is it about exploration? Is it, you know, reconnection after a vacation, after an argument? 
And so thinking about the whys of what you're doing, thinking about not just what you want to do, but how you want to feel. And these are generally questions that people have never been asked and they've never asked themselves. And I think also when we are operating on a set of assumptions, we just go through the motions of what we think is supposed to happen. Um, And anytime we're using any shoulds or supposed tos, we're probably getting into trouble. But to actually go slow enough to think about what do I even want to have happen next? Um, I have clients that I've worked with um, who go on dates and talk about, oh, I went on a date and then I went home with the person and then we had sex just because that felt like that's the normal progression of events and they don't ask themselves until the next day, is that what I wanted? Am I happy with what happened? And so trying to teach people to actually build in time to stop and think and check in with yourself, you know, even if you have to go take a bathroom break or go check your phone break, whatever that looks like, so you can actually pause and see how you're feeling in your body. And part of that is learning how your body responds to different feelings because your body often knows things before your brain does. So if something is moving too fast what does that feel like for you? Are you carrying tension in your shoulders? Are you feeling an upset stomach? Like what, what is happening in your body when that is going on for you? Because sometimes you can find those clues before a coherent thought manifests for you saying like, Oh gosh, maybe I don't want this, but maybe you've been sick to your stomach 10 minutes before your brain's like, hang on. So if you can learn how to listen to what your body is saying, that can really help. Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense. And we talk about like slowing down mm-hmm. and, you know, in, in therapy terms, like taking a moment to pause or, you mm-hmm. know, just stopping. And I'm thinking as you were talking, it's like, this is all about communicating consent. You know, there's mm-hmm. so, thank goodness, there's so much more awareness around consent. And there's still, this all comes down to consent and sex ed mm-hmm. because we don't, how, how are we even taught in the first place what it even means to slow down and check in with ourselves and then and then communicate yeah this consent which is what your book is doing is helping people to do this mm-hmm. when they have not been taught because there's no other venues where people talk about this in this way yeah if it's taught at all it's taught the way the rest of sex ed is which is fear based like oh you have to get consent or you'll go to jail It gets not about, hey, we want to actually have optimal, pleasurable sexual experiences. We want to feel good about what we're doing with our bodies and with other people. But pleasure never enters the equation. Yeah, in sex education, Mm -hmm. pleasure never enters the equation. Yeah, that's what they talk Mm -hmm. about with high schools especially. That's why they don't Mm -hmm. listen to the sex that they are given because they're like, "Mm, you're not, it's not, this is not pleasurable. I want pleasure. And well, then also people don't know that something is wrong if sex isn't feeling good or if it's hurting. Yeah, Because so much, especially for folks with vulvas, so much of the talk about sex is, especially your first time hurts, but there's so much pop culture joking about sex being painful that people don't know it shouldn't be. Yeah. And so another really great piece of this book being really inclusive from how, you know, again, from the framework that I'm reading, this is so great is it's taking all of these things from just sex, relationships, kink, BDSM, or folks who don't engage in kink or BDSM, 
all types of relationships, monogamy, non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, polyamory. It's really so inclusive. And so I, I love how you, you know, step by step do these, take in these different ways of communicating and, you know, starting with a date and starting how to communicate and then going to different types of relationships and then being really explicit about ways to communicate new styles of sex that you might want mm-hmm. um, and also how to negotiate kink or BDSM scene and just really, you know, it's really descriptive and really broad, which is great, broad but specific at the same time. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like because, you know, whenever kink, you know, because it made it into the the subtitle, people think it's going to be all about kink. And so I don't want to scare off the people who aren't into kink. The kink specific stuff is a small portion of it. But a big part of my my outlook is that it's the same communication as for everyone, kink or not, poly or monogamous, you know, queer or straight or anything else. Everybody needs to talk about everything that they're doing. And those skills apply regardless of how you're going to be engaging with folks. And I do think that we we act like different rules apply. And sometimes it's true. Sure, if you're engaging in something, you know, risky or risky kink, then there are perhaps higher consequences of not communicating fully. So I think sometimes certain communities... Um, have more of a, a culture of a communication kink communities because it's risky poly communities just because you get into trouble faster if you're engaging with multiple people and not communicating well i feel like in some queer communities there's more communication about sex simply because you can't run on assumptions as much if there isn't as much cultural assumption around how those body parts go together so some communities have a little bit more of a culture of communication but Everybody needs the help and everybody gets into trouble with this stuff. Yeah. And I like, you know, one of the things I think from the BDSM community and kink community that could be really utilized. And I talk about this in my counseling sessions is the idea of aftercare. Mm -hmm. Cause I feel like that is something that the average person doesn't think about. And when we think about all the, you know, the, you know, in the kink community, they call it like a sub drop Mm -hmm. or in chemistry language it's like the serotonin drop Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I love the idea of bringing that into all types of play whether it's a one-night stand or you know a fling or whatever kind of sexual encounter it is to have that to really care for yourself like it's like self-care after sex but with with that person that you engage or persons that you engaged with yeah yeah, I don't even like the term sub drop because that implies that it's only the bottom or the submissive that yeah, can have that yeah. experience and it can happen to everybody, you know, tops and doms need aftercare too. And you're right, there doesn't have to have been any kink whatsoever. If you get engage in any kind of intense experience, you're probably going to have some needs after that. It doesn't even need to be sex. People talk about con drop. You know, someone goes to either anything from a work conference to Comic-Con, you spend three days in this bubble of high excitement and then you're back at your desk job on Monday and there is a a drop there. Yeah. And and you still need the higher self-care. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Yes. I hope that readers, that readers, listener, well, readers and listeners (laughs) take that to heart both. Um, one thing I did want to bring up and, you know, ask about, because I know there's a lot of myths and 
constantly trying to debunk the myth of folks who engage in BDSM have all been abused or they're using in a way. And that's not true. And I wonder how folks who have um, had trauma or been in abusive situations who are also part of the BDSM community, how that communication looks or how those folks communicate with each other, communicate their experience and and trauma while, you know, fully consenting as people do. Those assumptions get, get so tricky and so frustrating. I even got that feedback from a therapist of my own at one point sort of started hinting around, maybe you're into this because of childhood stuff. And I pitched such a fit in the middle of the session. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a really damaging assumption. And on the flip side of that, sometimes people who have had trauma feel like they need to justify that they can engage in kink and BDSM in a healthy way. And it isn't have to be because of that. And it doesn't exclude them. Um, there is, especially in, in kink and poly communities, some of our, our language implies that somebody who does have any kind of mental health issue is somehow excluded from, from being a person who can engage in that play, um, which I think is really damaging and untrue and exclusionary. Um, so it's never anybody's um, obligation to share with you anything about their past. Somebody yeah. might have trauma and not want to share that, and that's okay. Um, but it is certainly everyone's job to take care of themselves and to give the part- their partners the information that they will need to engage safely and with pleasure. So a lot of my book, it talks about going so slowly and communicating so clearly that hopefully that will work for people who do have a trauma background. I say in some of my classes that, and this is appalling, but just statistically speaking, it is more likely that whoever you're engaging with has some sort of trauma in their background than not. So it is generally statistically a safe assumption to make. And so to always be communicating clearly and moving slowly as though that might be the case. Um, And, It's also important, especially when people are engaging in kink, they often talk about um, having hard limits, so basically things that are an absolute no-go in the play or talking about what triggers they may have. But I think that it's important for people to talk about that with any sexual encounter. A lot of what I talk about is that I think every group can learn from the other groups. So folks who are only ever going to engage in vanilla sex, I think there are things to be learned from the kinksters, like the idea of aftercare or hard limits, because that applies no matter what you're doing. And so sometimes if people have a trauma background, there might be um, you know, particular phrases that are going to be triggering for them or particular areas of their body that they don't want to have touched or positions they don't want to be in. And that can be really valuable to communicate whether or not you explain why that's a no-go. Um, I had a play partner who never wanted their hands pinned behind their back. And that happened to be because they had a traumatizing experience around that. But they didn't say that to everyone. It was just when they're negotiating play, you know, here's what I do like, here's what I don't like, and please make sure you don't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So communicating that just becomes really important. And that also loops back to your previous question about self-awareness. Unfortunately, with some of the stuff, we don't always know there's a landmine until we step in it. 
For sure. And so sometimes the first time there's just a big whoops and there's an upset. And so sometimes it's also nice to to have a plan in advance of what how do we want to handle it if we find something we didn't know about? And to talk to someone about what are you going to need? Do you want to be snuggled? Are you going to need to be left alone? So if you just know in general, what do I need when I'm triggered or what do I need when I'm upset? And communicating that to a partner so you can pre-plan for what happens if something goes sideways. Because even if it's all well-meaning people who have negotiated, stuff can still happen. There are no guarantees around this. And I would say, you know, for folks who, who do have some sort of a trauma history, I do obviously think it's a really good idea to go to therapy for that. Um, people sometimes talk about, you know, kink or certain sexuality communities as being therapeutic. And some people might find that to be true, but I think that's very risky. And I don't think it is a replacement for having done actual trauma-informed therapy. So I do think if that's something you've got going on, address that first. So you do have the self-awareness, so you do know what you need around that, and that you make sure that pushing some of those buttons again is going to be a safe thing for you to do. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, lo- I really appreciate how you said just going into any of these conversations, thinking that there's probably a high chance, whether that person wants to disclose that or not, there's probably a high chance that they have experienced some kind of trauma. So that's a really good way to go about it. So I, you know, coming away from reading this book, I, some of the points that really stick out, you know, quick review and, and obviously so much more, but, you know, (laughs) slowing down, building self-awareness, clarity of communication, not having assumptions. And then what we haven't mentioned too much of, but of course have fun, right? (laughs) Have fun with all this in. And I think that piece of learning how to communicate more clearly with your partner or partners allows for the possibility of that enjoyment and pleasure so much more. It's not a turn off. It's not a downer. It's not, I mean, it could be a little bit of a downer, but really it's like all of this, all of this in your book will just help increase pleasure and enjoyment and fun. I know that some people, you know, I run into the, the talking ruins, the mood people with my clients, with my students, even with, you know, people I go on dates with, um, and that just makes me so sad because I think you're absolutely right. It lays the groundwork for so much fun. And I do think it should be playful. I have exercises in the book specifically because they are so silly. I doubt you can do them with a straight face. <laughs> because especially if, if people have been having less than optimal sex for a while or if sex has become a hot bush an issue in the relationship, it gets so high stakes and so stressful. And as soon as a hand is placed in not quite the right place and everybody's upset and it just melts down really quickly, finding ways to get the silliness and the playfulness back into sex, getting the fun back into sex, I think is so important. And even kink and BDSM. I mean, if you ever find me in a dungeon, I'm going to be laughing to the dismay of some people. But I think all of this should be fun and playful. If it's not fun, why are we doing it? Yeah. Well, well real quick, I would love, do you, do you on the top, of, off the top of your head, 
your silly one of your can you describe one of your silly exercises or one of the little mini things that get couples talking and being kind of more playful? Absolutely. So I, I have a lot of exercises in there that that help people with some of the talking pieces. So for yeah. one thing, if the idea of talking during sex feels too unnatural, have it not be about sex. Have it specifically be we're going to do this exercise now and have it be a thing that is different or separate from what you consider your normal sex life. Um, And some of the exercises that I have in there are about, well, I often suggest that people think of communicating during sex maybe as, as some sort of dirty talk. Um, But a lot of people feel ridiculous during dirty talk. And so some of the exercises are to set up a role play scenario that is completely absurd Um, I think one of the ones I suggest in the book is something like car and car mechanic, like things that are just, (laughs) you know, unless you have a car fetish, you know, that maybe doesn't sound super sexy. It's kind of absurd. And, you know, if you're role playing, giving your partner an oil change, you know, I, I defy you to do that and not giggle at least a little (laughs) bit. Um, But because it's so off the wall, it gives you permission for this to be silly and absurd and because people don't have those parts, you have to like use words and use your imagination and just be goofy and ridiculous about it. Oh, that's great. I, I like that as an ending note. So I- <laughs> <laughs> being silly. <laughs> Bring fun into it. Who coined the phrase that, you know, sometimes you just stop and have to go make a sandwich and then start again. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Just things happen. Mm-hmm. All the things. Well, so once again, your book, Tongue Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships. Ugh, I encourage everyone, if you if last minute Christmas gift or just, <laughs> I'm encouraging everyone to read this. It's, it's great. Whatever kind of relationship or kind of sexual thing that you enjoy or into. Stella, before we wrap up, is there anything that is upcoming that you'd like to tell listeners, um, any of your classes or anything going on for you? Yeah, I have a bunch of classes coming up in Portland in January. I think I'm staying put in Portland in January. I'm doing um, a sex ed series uh, for the Portland Underground Graduate School. It's a four-week sex ed for adults, things you should have learned in school. Um, I'm teaching my class Mapping the Vulva for the Portland Leather Alliance. Um, I have uh, a class coming up. I think I'm doing... I think I'm doing pegging for uh, Sub Rosa PDX, which is a small little dungeon space. And there's probably a couple of other things that I'm forgetting. There's a lot going on in Portland in January. I'm also putting together some online classes at long last after being asked to do it and promising I would for four or five years now. Um, So hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter if you're not on there yet, because that will be where I put the first announcement when the online classes are available. Hopefully a launch in February. TBD, I'm still working out the technology side, um, but that's really going to help for locations that I don't make it to. Um, and I will be doing more book touring in 2019. Um, a stop in LA soonish. East Coast is looking perhaps like May. Um, we'll see. I'm, I'm sorting out the details, but hop onto my website. There's a link for upcoming classes, and my newsletter is the best way to know what I'm up to. Great. Well, thank you again, Stella. And thanks to all the listeners out there. And remember, the best love is self-love.